Welcome to the Final Draft Podcast. My name is Andrew Popel. Today, I am joined by Helena Fox. Now, here on the Final Draft Podcast, we explore books, writing, and literary culture. Every week, Final Draft broadcasts from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. And at Final Draft, we are dedicated to exploring Australian writing from debut authors to the classics that you know and love. And in each of these conversations, we look into the issues that drive the author's storytelling, a way to discover more from the books that you love, because these are the stories that make us who we are. Now, two SEO broadcasts from the lands of the Gadigal people, and I'm recording on the lands of the Darug and Gunungurra people. I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of those lands, pay my respects to their ongoing connection to their lands, acknowledging that these are unceded lands and that treaty has never been made with Australia's First Nations. Now, today on the show, I am joined by Helena Fox. Helena is the award-winning author of How It Feels to Float. That book did so incredibly well. You can catch a conversation with Helena um, about that book in the archive. And today she's joining me with her new novel, The Quiet and the Loud. Helena has such an incredibly beautiful way of depicting lives, young people's lives, and mental health and mental health struggles. Um, I really can't wait to share this conversation with you. So join Helena and I as we discuss The Quiet and the Loud. Hello. Hello. Helena, welcome. Uh, Congratulations on everything that happened around how it feels to float and The Quiet and the Loud, such a successor. Thank you so much, Andrew. It's just lovely to be back chatting with you, um, having just having put out the first book and four years later be chatting with you about the next. It's really lovely. And it is, it really is just such a, I called it a successor. It's by no means a sequel, but um, no. <laughs> it, is, it is quite a successor, I think, in terms of your incredible style, um, mm. your, the, the, the sort of the thematic world that you create. But perhaps, perhaps I'll give, um, give our listeners a little bit of an intro to George. Um, and George's life feels too loud. Her best friend Tess has decided to get pregnant at 18, but George will be there for her just like she's always been there for her. She'll be there for Tess just like she's there for her family and her friends. George is even trying to find a way to be there for her estranged dad when he calls her out of the blue to drop some world-shattering news. George will be there for them all because she doesn't know how to not be there for them. It's all too noisy. And now, with fires ringing the city, her dad's incessant calls and a new girl appearing on the beach, George can't help feeling when something might just be for her. Um, Helena, I'm just actually, I'm going to add to that little sort of synopsis and intro to the story there, that um, people who are familiar with your work, people who have heard our previous conversation, will know that we're probably going to get into some some themes, particularly themes around uh, mental health, mental illness, trauma. Um, And so I'm just going to mention that if anyone is struggling with these, if anyone uh, feels like this isn't, you know, a conversation they're ready for right now, tune out, come back to us on the podcast, or know that help is available and that you can call Lifeline on 131114. But (laughs) I do want to really get into this story. Um, When we meet George, we meet her through juxtaposed images of her out Mm. on the water. At nine, she's seemingly been abandoned by her father in a lake at night. At 18, she's paddling in the harbour, trying to find some space just for her. I wondered about these these sort of twin depictions. Was George a character who evolved for you through the writing, or did you really need to have an image of her whole in all of her complexity of her life's experiences as you began? 
Oh, um, she evolved, absolutely evolved. Also, that was a really beautiful summary of the book. Thank, Thank you. you so much. It was just gorgeous. Um, yeah, the the idea began with an image of um, a girl out on still water. Um, and initially, my very first image of her was on a lake uh, rowing, um, like a single skull row. Um, and she was... It was raining and I thought it was winter, <laughs> which goes to show how much you can evolve because this book is set very much in the summer of 2019 when the bushfires are just really raging and um, and the, the heat is palpable. So it's really interesting how even the weather evolved in the creation of this book. And George was, um, she came in these glimpses, she came in mood. I, I had listened to this song called Georgia by Phoebe Bridges, which I adore. And there was a yearning in that, that the subject, um, the lyrics of that song aren't the same as in my book. Or, you know, they don't follow the path of my book. But um, there was a yearning and, 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 you know, the classic beautiful Phoebe melancholy in that in that song. And so it's like, Georgia, who's Georgia? And then it was like, who's this girl that I'm seeing on this boat? What, you know, why does everything feel gray blue? Why is it early morning? Like what, what is she doing? Why is she out there? And then it was, I just started writing into it. I started writing into this girl's um, sort of sense of aloneness and, and, and also her, how she just kind of just carries and holds all these other people's things. And then I think the story really woke up when um, it was like I rode out, you know, when I was almost nine, I rode out with my father to the middle of a lake. And it was like, oh, what's that? And so then I wrote and then he jumps in the water and splish splashes away, leaving her at nine years old to try and get herself back to shore. And that's when everything started to wake up. And then it was just almost, I just, took her to the next place, which was her on the water eight years, nine years later, um, getting these, getting this kind of, these calls from her dad, this kind of start waking up her past trauma. And that's when I had those two images is when I knew where I started to know where I was going with the story. Cause it was like, why is he estranged? What, you know, what was it like before that? What's, the past that's waking up why is she avoiding his call why doesn't she want to speak to him so and then from there you know the family in the in the old house on the water they appeared and friends appeared and because she's got another friend dealing with climate grief and and they're like antagonistic but absolutely like embedded friendship you know George witnesses that so it's it's like all the noise sort of woke up around this quiet girl. It's like rose up from the from from the surface and just kind of swamps her. And it's just really interesting how that happened very organically in, in the writing and the writing and the writing of these glimpses. As you spoke there, I realized just how how gorgeous and gorgeously simple the the image and the metaphor of her paddling is because paddling mm. does require such a balance paddling yes. can so easily be upset and as i thought about that then i realized just how absolutely brilliant and listeners are not going to understand what i'm talking about here yet mm. but uh the scene <laughs> the scene where george is paddling and mm. she accidentally or well <laughs> she is um she is spurred to um overturn herself um and and she thinks it is just the complete failure of her her paddling um yeah. uh and Calliope uh sees it and thinks it's just the most brilliant thing that not only she did it but that she righted herself 
Um, mm. And really, like, I, I'm not even going to pretend for a second that that was accidental. Like that, that in that image is the entire book, isn't it? Oh, that's lovely. Yeah, I mean, upended, 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 and then trying to write herself constantly and being um, not being sure she's allowed to write herself, and not being sure, and that you know, and just the messiness of of overturning, and the messiness and the embarrassment and the the self consciousness of of finding yourself overwhelmed and then going, well, how in the world can I write myself? How in the world can anything be okay? And I know this. I know this feeling acutely in my body of that overwhelm. It's like there's too much noise, too much noise. How in the world will I find a clean, steady path through this through this noise? Um, and I think that's why the paddling just for me, it's like just very much, you know, just there's a thrum to it. There's a steadiness to it. But yet at the same time, you're constantly having to make sure that um, that you are moving, you know, cleanly and in a balanced way over the water. So it's that's lovely that you've brought that up. And um, it's a really beautiful metaphor that I, I think personally I was like, oh, I've just done that. And, you know, when other people go, you just did that. It's like, I just did that. Of course yeah. I just did that. <laughs> it is marvellous. Um, mm-hmm. in, in How It Feels to Float and the Quiet and the Loud, water features prominently. What is yeah. it about water that calls oh to you? Oh, my gosh. What is it about water? Why? My two water books in their own different ways, also my, my they're like sister books. They're like both exploring trauma in their own ways, both exploring, you know, the, the things we hold inside and things we're af- afraid to speak. And so for me, water, well, for one, water, you know, the ocean and, and waves themselves are a chaos system. So there's nothing predictable about water. Um, it's very difficult to control. It's deeply powerful. It's also an incredibly peaceful thing to be around. Um, there's there's noise and stillness in water, constantly changing comes from above you know you can ride on it (laughs) um so i grew up well part of my childhood i was on i lived in samoa in the in the pacific and you know had water all around me there and then um i also have lived by the ocean a lot of my life and then for the past 20 years i've lived on darawal country in wollongong I go to the water constantly for for solace, for comfort, but I'm also aware of the wildness of water, and so I don't necessarily want to surf in it <laughs> or free dive in it. I, I'm, you know, I have, uh, I, ha- I don't know if other people would think it's healthy. I think of it as a very healthy respect for the wildness of the sea. Um, but yeah, I think water is probably the cl- the 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 nature natural element that I'm closest to. Um, as much as I love hiking. Um, mountains are great, <laughs> but the sea is the sea and rivers and lakes. Are, I've always been drawn to my whole life. Mm. Yeah, and so it makes sense that it's yeah that both characters are kind of immersed in that space as well. Oh, I concur. I concur. I love being by the water. <laughs> um, so bringing us back to the narrative, mm. George's best friend Tess has decided to get pregnant at eighteen. Mm. There is a lot going on in her story, perhaps even a book in itself. Um, yeah, I know. <laughs> I, read, I read in your afterword that you didn't want this to be a lecture about teen pregnancies. You didn't have an agenda. But I was curious. I mean, climate sort of catastrophe um, is a big theme in this book. And in a world mm. where many people are deciding against yes. having a family, because the outlook is so bleak, is Tess, is Tess maybe a, a signal of hope? A signal, hopeless naivety, some something of the two. 
I think something of the two. I mm. think it depends how you what you see and how you see the world at the moment. Um, it can be a deeply hopeful act mm. to have a child in this uncertain climate crisis situation. Um, I think it's also a, a perfectly okay thing to not have a child um, and to buck this kind of expectation that everyone grows up and they da da da. They have their families. I think being mindful about the world is really critical. And Testus showed up similarly to how George showed up. George shows up on the water. She's paddling. There's a situation with her dad. I found that out as I wrote. And then I remember writing into this scene. She goes to meet Tess after a paddle. Tess goes, I'm, you know, I want to see you. <laughs> and, and George is like, okay, I will stop my morning paddle and come and see my friend. Um, and as I was writing that scene, it says, and Tess is resplendently pregnant. And I went, Okay, so Tess is pregnant. That's very interesting. I wonder why. I wonder what's going on with that. And then Laz, the other best friend, shows up and um, instantly there's like this kind of push-pull between them. And I and as I learned more about Laz, I realized he's dealing with pretty profound climate grief. And so as a writer, you can imagine the little, ooh, what's this? What's this? What's going on between this spiky anxious boy and this spiky anxious girl and the and the deeply people pleasy person of George trying to navigate those two spiky spiky feelings and that sense of what do I do about the climate crisis how can I help Laz what do I do for Tess I didn't say I would help her have a baby um but suddenly I'm in this world and she's expecting me to kind of raise this baby with her this impulsive decision um comes from kind of carelessness and also just a bit of nihilism where she's like she's given some news from a palm reader and decides she's going to die young and she's like okay well then if I'm you know what's my legacy it's going to be a baby it doesn't make sense um and so there's just I remember when the noise of these two people showed up it wasn't I never thought oh I'm writing a teen pregnancy book I never thought oh I'm writing a climate crisis book I didn't think, oh, I'm writing a bushfire book or, oh, I'm writing a, a book about a, a, a father um, who's been an alcoholic all of George's life. I didn't think, oh, I'm writing an issues book about no. any of these things. They showed up and it was like, well, that's noisy. Mm. That's a lot of noise and that feels a lot like life where you're like, I'd really like to just deal with this one thing right now. And it's like, oh, no, here's COVID or, oh, no, here's bushfires. Oh, no, here's somebody going through heartbreak who I love dearly. Here's someone's just lost someone they love. It's like, what do we do? <laughs> so with Tess, I think I wrote that afterward um, when, especially when uh, Roe v. Wade was overturned in the Supreme Court in the U.S. Because one thing I never even questioned was Tess's right to decide whether she would have this baby or not she falls pregnant she makes the decision to to remain pregnant and to have this child never even thought that that right could be taken away from her and i think that's why i had that little addendum is that this is not about you know should she shouldn't she have had this baby it isn't about you know oh yeah see she's having the baby that's my that's my philosophy you know these people should all have babies anyone who is able to get pregnant that's not my agenda that's mm. not where i'm standing at all so i feel quite passionately about um everyone having the right to choose what happens to their bodies and then feel very passionately that everyone should speak out about 
um, in whatever way they can about the climate crisis, they have a right to have a livable planet. Um, so it kind of these things that I care about rose up in these characters. And then George gets like so overwhelmed because she does care. But how does she speak when she's so quiet? Where does she speak and what form does that take? Yeah. I want to pull on the thread. You talked about Laz there. You talked about his climate grief. And I feel like it's mm. a term that it's a term that like it has a, a very first pass um, common sense understanding. But mm. perhaps especially especially if, if you know, we're um, we're older than yeah, yeah. Um, than Tess and George and, <laughs> and Laz, maybe yeah. maybe is not felt as much as it's understood. Um, and the narrative of the quiet and the loud, it's backgrounded by the fires that was seemingly engulfing the whole country back in 2019. Yeah. Um, and this story, this part of the story is cracked open through Laz's environmental activism, but also his growing desperation. Um, yeah. he, he thinks Tess is a bit irresponsible, bringing a child into the world. George George feels the, his, his need to protest, but she struggles also to feel like she's allowed to be happy, to have something good in her world when something this big is happening in the background. Laz mm. has that way of overwhelming her. Mm. Can you can you talk about that sort of um, that, that uh, environmental grief and portraying these young characters and how this can engulf their whole world through the novel? Mm. Well, at the time that um, you know, twenty twenty, I was started writing this book in twenty nineteen when um, we had those beautiful protest marches by the, mm. so many young people, and I was really galvanized by that and hopeful because of that but also I have been an environmentalist since I was the same age since I was about 16 or 17 I've been thinking about the Amazon rainforest since I was little um, and then just watching kind of in growing horror that nobody's doing anything and so um, just this odd feeling of oh wait you know this this train we're on <laughs> It's not heading anywhere good. We can see what we're going towards. Can we please do something about that? And so I was working with a lot of young people and I have I have mentored young writers for years. And so I watched a lot of my students um, instigate climate protests and, and I was seeing the growth of um, the, I'm sorry, blanked on the wonderful revolutionaries you know who are um are they, and I, like Greta Thunberg and yeah, yeah and also the um I have completely blanked on the name of this beautiful organization that does worldwide um climate actions peaceful protest non-violent climate protest and so um I watched young people get you know get into that but they also expressed you know from my children on to you know this sense of despair and also are we allowed you know these people that I these young people they've fallen in love um they're building a future they're they're both despairing and hopeful at the exact same time because I think that's where we exist is that we vacillate constantly we that we live in a constantly terrible beautiful world we you know there's and so yeah she's I think Laz has a stridency, but also a softness that we see later in the book, you know, because he, he has love in his life and he finds light as well and he finds hope through his climate action. Um, and I think ultimately I kind of wanted to communicate that there's space for joy and there's space for you to speak your voice 
um, there's space for finding hope through doing something, even if it's um, even if what you do is quiet. And you know, I'm I'm part of an initiative with Red Room Poetry to get young people writing poems about nature and about if they want to about the climate crisis. It's called Poem Forest, and I that came out um, on you know on Twitter, and people were like, "Oh, why are you freaking? Why are you freaking young people out?" And it's like they're already freaked out. Um, I'm not doing that. (laughs) I'm offering a way that you might be able to speak to that and have a voice, even if you feel hopeless and it's like, there's nothing I can do. So falling in love is a hopeful act. So do it, do it. Let's let's put a bookmark in in poem for us. That might be it. We might be having yes. another conversation in a in a month or so. I love that. I that love would, that. That sounds like a brilliant <laughs> initiative. Yeah. Um, it strikes me. So we're we're talking on a weekend where I guess uh, nationally, especially sort of amongst the commentariat, people are. Uh, trying to explore, I guess, the the shift in in uh, philosophical, social, political kind of leanings around the country. And I bring that up because I heard a really interesting comment the other day about, you know, why um, why conservative uh, governments are falling. And, and someone had said, well, young people are shying away from conservatism because they have nothing to conserve. And it's like, that's a wow. brilliant soundbite, but also extraordinarily frightening in its, mm. in its implications that there is a generation or possibly several generations who who really are struggling to see what um, wh- what is conser- to there to conserve to be conservative about because they are they literally feel like they are fighting for their existence yes mm. no I question there, I, just I, <laughs> <laughs> I agree and I just go yes <laughs> because they are it's it's absolutely. I, I, you know, not to freak anyone out, but this is this is serious, and we need to take it seriously. Um, all the things that I touch on in my book are serious and need to be taken seriously. And so, I think it's okay to have a. I don't think we should always just be like everything's okay. I think we should say everything isn't okay, and what are we going to do about it? And how can we help everyone do something? Um, because there's just report after report. This the science is in. Gravity exists. <laughs> the science is in. Mm. Um, it's been in for a really long time. Uh, so, I think I've forgotten. Oh no, you said a statement, so it's okay. Yeah, it I don't totally, have to answer yeah. that question. <laughs> but it's that sense of. Um, well, I think it's somewhere in the book. I say, uh, Laz and his beautiful boyfriend Adesh. It's like they're gonna. They're gonna. Um, try and save the whole this whole terrible world or at least go down trying you know so what do we do do we sit by um let's upend conservative governments that aren't doing anything that are still continuing to um you, you know begin fossil fuel projects let's upend the the status quo that says there's nothing to nothing to worry about let's just do the same old thing as always because the planet is showing us that it's in pain at the risk, at the risk of us all becoming conservatives, let's make sure there's something to conserve. Yeah, I think so. Like, I don't think we need to be us and them about this. I think we can include everyone in this mm. conversation. We don't have to have a battle. We could have a conversation. Mm. That's. It doesn't need to be. Well, I guess it doesn't need to be loud. 
it kind of has to be loud in, in that we all need to say something about this or at least acknowledge the reality of it. But I think we don't have to be punching each other out in hallways. We can be sitting down and, and chatting if we could possibly try to do that. That's me, my little <laughs> snick. <laughs> I think um I think in our conversation we've we've sort of naturally fallen into a dilemma that mm. George finds throughout yes. the novel, and that is in the balance of the quiet and the loud, it's mm. the, the loud always finds space. It muscles in, it takes up room. And we are, we are very much talking to the loudness of the story. Um, yeah. And I wanted to, I, I'm, I'm not sure how, how do we speak into the quiet, but let's try. Um, okay. I, was, I was curious how throughout the novel you present the reader with vignettes of George's past, her mm. life when her dad was still part of the family. And, you know, the flashback is a part of storytelling. But for George, as George reflects on these memories, they, they are something somewhat intrusive thoughts. They, she talks about how they're coming back to her almost unbidden, welling mm. up, overwhelming her. I wondered how you approached writing this really complicated dynamic. What were you, what were you hoping to convey there? Um, I think what I was, when, I, when we were chatting earlier before, um, I talked about how... Um, just lost my train of thought. <laughs> um, we were chatting about the um, the way that um, I've actually completely lost my train of thought. And let me talk to that. Actually, I live with mental health issues. I live with complex PTSD, and I live with. Um, much of what George lives with in that flashbacks arrive, um, unbidden, and dissociation happens quite unbidden, and I lose my train of thought, and I also have memory issues. And I think what I wanted to write into this book was a sense of that, I'm coming back to what I remember now, is just I wanted to immerse the reader in how it feels to be a complex PTSD survivor and live with noise around you and what that feels like. And with my first book, How Feels to Float, um, that trauma kind of comes out as dissociative and, and, and then becomes, you know, she sees visions and things like that. And it's a really tough time for Biz in that first book. And for this one, the way that her complex PTSD manifests is this almost, it's a fawn response where she absolutely needs to make sure everyone's safe and everything's secure. And at the same time, she also has a very classic lived experience of flashbacks um, where uh, you can just be doing nothing and then you can be suddenly in a flashback. You can have it. It can be a physical sensation. It can be a visual thing that you see. It can just be your mind going blank, which my mind just did. Um, and so then you often seek quiet and you seek shelter and you seek stability and you seek you want make you want to make sure no one's unhappy <laughs> and so um as a technique the using of the flashbacks was again that sense of immersion it's like she's just rowing no she's not wrong she's paddling her kayak she gets a buzz and sees her dad's message and she's back in that lake um 
or she'll be doing something else. She'll get, she got the news from her dad, this awful, awful news. She's back in Seattle the last time she saw him when he had no real control over um, his, his drinking at that moment. And she thought he did. And, and this, the shock of thinking that she was safe and then suddenly realizing she wasn't is just enormous for anyone who lives with any kind of trauma. It, it, you can just be shocked right back into um, what you live through as a moment of chaos or a moment of lack of safety. With complex PTSD, this happens over and over again. You are unsafe many, 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 many times over. Um, and so that's what I was trying to, with the cutting back and the cutting back, it was that sense of here we are again, here we are again. Even in the quietest moment with her mum towards the end of the book, there's a really big flashback. Um, moment that is it's really quite distressing and um i want to say that having done that and cutting back into flashback and talking about this technique and 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 maybe for anyone who is a survivor or living with complex ptsd you might think this is really triggering for me i'm not going to touch this book and that's okay if you don't want to i just want to add that these books for me are about finding a path through finding hope finding some kind of voice so that you can start to establish your safety and start to actually manage those unbidden thoughts and um, find a way to come steady your boat mm. so that you can move forward and be hopeful about your life and be healthy and, and not be a victim, but literally survive and, th- and survive and thrive, yeah. but like actually have a good life, even with all, Climate crisis is big. Mm. Stress is big. There's COVID, blah, blah, blah. It's so big. Um, but yes, there is a quiet path you can take or even a loud one. You could be out dancing. You do do that. Mm. You know, if you want to shout in the marches, be loud. You don't have to be quiet to survive trauma. You can also be wild. You can get on a ferry like Calliope and George do and just ride the swell and get covered in spray and feel giddy and excited and full of love and life and you can be laughing your head off. It's allowed. You know, we're allowed to find safety and we're also allowed to dance and make noise. Yeah. Yeah. You, made, you made me want to, I haven't ridden, I haven't ridden the ferries like that since I was, I think, <laughs> George, and, George and Calliope's age. Um, yeah. I, it's extraordinarily effective. Um, and before I speak any more to that, I think I might actually, because you are right, this is, this is something that people may find um, mm. difficult, even just having it spoken about um, mm. outside the experience. So I will just remind people that, that if this is something that is, um, that is close to them, that if it is something that does make them feel overwhelmed that help is always available and that one of those places you can seek help it's not the only place but one place that is very well known and that is accessible is lifeline on 131114 and i i wanted to talk about that because it was so extraordinarily effective and yeah. as a result like i found i found george's story overwhelming at times and yeah. i found myself pausing i found myself you know stopping um you write about mental health in ways that I guess it's, they swept me up and to, to borrow another water metaphor, they dumped me forcibly on the shore. Oh, um, I guess you've, my, my question, my question that I had written there was how, how you managed your feelings as you wrote. And you mm. have, you have talked a little bit about that, but I guess it, I guess one thing that I would also note is that in the book, through the book, through taking George's story with her, 
we, at least in that space, in Georgia's space, we have a way to move forward because we move forward. We trust you as, as the author and we move yeah. forward in Georgia's story, um, which, which has a power in itself. And that's, that's something of the power of literature, something in the power of that representation that we, we can take you and we can trust you as the author to, to move us forward. Yeah. And I am... Um yeah, the journey of me writing this book was a, it was a hard one. Um, I've been dealing with some really serious personal challenges for a while now, and I've had to write a book through it. And um, I remember there was this moment going, I don't think, I don't know how I can do it. This is really hard. I'm not getting the path right. My editors were so kind. Oh, my gosh. They would return the manuscript and say, no, <laughs> it's not ready. Um, but in such a nurturing way, and I remember thinking, oh, and, of course, I invented a truth. I was like, the last book was so easy to write. <laughs> this book's so hard. Not true. Both books were had their, their own challenges. Um, so how did I do it? I think I used that moving forward as a metaphor for my own life. Um, at some point on my wall, I actually wrote moment by moment um, because that was the advice I received from a very very trusted psychologist she said she listened to what was going on in my life and she said well that's all very very big and at this point we just we go moment by moment and so I remember thinking my days were kind of marked by cups of tea um, and it was marked by here I am I'm making a cup of tea I'm physically here I ground myself I look around I'd notice birds listen to my cat purring the tick of a clock I'd find myself back in my body. I'd go back and do the work. And and I remember feeling very grateful, um, even though the writing of the book was a challenge, I was so, so grateful to have the project of it because I had something to go back to and continue working on. I had something to um, of, of worth. I had purpose. Um, and I had I had this kind of need to find a way through for George. I, in the same way with How It Feels to Float, I remember my mission with How It Feels to Float was I want her I want her to be safe. I want to find a way to get her through this enormous, enormous despair that she's feeling and this lost feeling, and I want her to feel safe. I want her to feel hope again. And with George, it was I want her to find her voice. I want her to find her voice and speak it which is my message really to every young person, but really to anyone, find your voice and speak it. And so I, in in my personal challenges, I've found my voice, I've spoken it, I've advocated for uh, myself, I've found ways to nurture myself. Um, so it's really, even though it's absolutely not a memoir, it also has a lot of me in this book, you know, my own realizations, my own self-care, my own overwhelming sense of overwhelm with the noise. Um, so it's a very personal book. Mm. Um, so I think you probably can see that. And it's heavy, but also I, I hope, I mean, there's a lot of silliness too. There's some characters in there that made me laugh every time I read them, even though I wrote it. <laughs> um, there's some delightful humans in there that I, I love, like they're real, um, similar to Sylvie and Jasper in How It Feels to Float. So I'm glad for that. I don't want to. I don't want to turn away from the lighter moments. But I we've we've talked a lot about George and Tess and Laz, mm -hmm. and 
for their for their age and for their moment in life. I think it, it is as a reader, it's very easy to feel um, nurture towards them, to feel yeah. like we want to support them and lift them up. But you've also touched on George's dad. You've touched on his alcoholism, mm. and he has he has some pretty significant issues going on in his life. Mm. Issues that are both deserving of space and comfort and support, but also we see how these issues, how these struggles have led him to do things that have hurt George, that hurt their family. Mm. How did you go about balancing these portrayals of mental health and and that sense of, of damage through George's dad? Yeah, I think it's... Um I think, again, it's that sense of how it feels, how it feels for the person in the moment. So for George, what she's feeling, you know, years ahead, she might have more of a balanced view of her father at 18, quite freshly wounded from her visit to see him and wounded by all of those past experiences. She doesn't want to have anything to do with him. She feels very distant and and angry with him, which I think is as I have enormous compassion for what her father is living with. I understand that what he lives with is an illness. I also think um, we don't have to lay ourselves out in the path of someone if they are being destructive or or not caring for you or not being safe. We don't actually have to sacrifice ourselves yeah. in our compassion for that illness. And um, so I feel like it's important that we make, again, make sure that we look after ourselves and practice self-love and create healthy boundaries. So in her anger, in her hurt, she shut him out. And then he gives her this really devastating news. And she's like, oh, my obligation, I should really be there for him. And I don't want to be, I don't want to be. Um, and it brings her back to her childhood self, that helpless childhood, childhood self that, um, had no control over the chaos of, of watching her dad repeatedly drinking and and not being kind to her mum and, and being quite cruel. Um, and so much of that is just her trying to bubble herself and go, I'm not going to think about it. I know that feeling. I know that avoidance feeling. Um, and I think what was critical for George in moving forward and finding a space of compassion for her dad was him taking responsibility for his illness and the harm he had caused. And I think we all carry enormous things and I, none of it is ever an excuse to be cruel. And so if in, in, in the throes of our illness, of whatever illness we carry, um, if in, in, in the middle of that we do things that are unkind or um, that we, where we've actually profoundly hurt someone else, we need to own it. We do need to own that. Um, and, again, it's that adage of you can't, you can't help someone. They have to help themselves. And so it's, it's the shift. It's a very quiet little shift of her father acknowledging the pain that he caused that gives George some glimmer of an idea that she might be able to have a relationship with him in the future. And and some of us don't get that. Some of us don't get that closure with someone who's lived with addiction. Sometimes that person, we, we can't be in their lives. And um, that doesn't make us terrible people either. I think it's important, so important in all of these conversations to say, as much as we need to have again, 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 we have can have compassion for others. We absolutely have to practice it for ourselves. We mustn't sacrifice ourselves for for our compassion. Similar to 
her relationship with Tess. She can't just lie down and just do whatever Tess wants in raising this baby. She can't just go, yes, yes, I'll be loud in all these protests for the climate crisis. I have to find my own quiet way through, the one that suits me and fits me and continues to be kind. Um, so it's just all about, it's quite a, yeah, I realise it's a complicated book, but that's the point is what do we do? What do we do in the face of such complexity? What's our what's our path through? And and I think the path through is love. Mm. It's and go- it sounds so cheesy, but it is it's love. <laughs> it is it is complicated, but it is it is so well done and so gorgeously so gorgeous. Maybe not the right word there, Andrew. But um, <laughs> we've talked we've talked so much about some of the big, some of the I guess overwhelming um, mm. aspects of this story. And you've been so generous with your time. Do you have time for a couple more questions? Because I, I, I think we yeah. should maybe get to some of the, um, some of the the lighter or brighter uh, moments. Yeah. Um, yeah, sure. Amazing. Well, I, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about art. George mm. paints, um, and it began for her. It's, it's actually extraordinary. As I, as I start to compose this question, it's written in the, it's written on the page in front of me. But I realise <laughs> I'm, I'm recomposing it in my head because. For art, it's an opening up for George because it is a way for her to get out feelings she couldn't verbalise. But Mm. through learning art, it becomes this sort of beautiful opening up for her family, for her mum, just by circumstance, is a really important support for her mental health. Can you talk a little bit about that relationship or the relationship as you see it between art and mental health? Oh, oh, yes. <laughs> Everybody, um, welcome uh, to Helena's TED Talk. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> um, I think genuinely and deeply and absolutely that creativity is the most beautiful form of self-care that we can practice. And I feel it whether we paint, whether we write songs or sing, just sing them, um, writing books, writing poetry, build, making a pot with our hands. Um, creativity can also come in the form of like gardening. You know, you're doing something, you're making something, helping it grow. Um, anything that makes you feel curious, anything that gives you a sense of release, anything that lets you reflect and then take that reflection and put it into some kind of physical form could be dance as well. Um, I run workshops on this, on the act of writing as an act of self-care. And I've been working with a community organization called Makeshift for years, um, helping them run programs for people who can come into, into a workshop and be making something or writing something or painting something. And then on a personal level, it's been my, my actual lived experience that drawing has healed, has quietened my mind and given me a space for healing and tranquility. I write, I write. And it's a form of self-care for me. It's been my lifeline my whole life, but so has drawing and painting. Um, I had this beautiful friend for 10 years who was my children's mentor. And she was a right, she was a drawing teacher and a visual artist. And she basically was one of the people who raised my kids. And she's written in a way into this book. Um, where the character of Mel in the book is, is runs um, art workshops and painting um, painting classes. She's much more loud and kind of in your face than my beautiful friend Anna. But one of the things they have in common is um, Anna said there are no wrong lines. And I think when we paint, um, we're allowed to splish about 
And so George, she paints. Um, there are no wrong lines with what she creates. Um, there's a moment where she feels really terrible and she's tried to draw, but all come all that comes out are jagged lines. But then there's other times she tries to kind of communicate the feeling of a kiss or she tries to communicate, you know, the sense of a bird in flight or a bird, you know, processing the fact that it's not here anymore. That's a whole other section of the book. Um, But, yeah, painting, um, all of that, or any kind of creative practice is so healing, so, so clean, cleanly healing. And and it's also a lovely way to just get out what you hold inside. We can't, it's too hard to carry it all inside. Let's let it out in safety. Um, So painting is just one beautiful way to do that. Yeah, I mean, Again, as you were speaking there, you had me thinking about the way the presumptions we make about communication as, mm. you know, as in Australia, so many of us are, are brought up uh, monolingual English is our only language. But not only not only do we only have one language to communicate with, we, we presume or we privilege verbal communication yeah. uh, to the point that we often forget that there are other ways to communicate to um and, and as soon, of course, and the reason I bring this up is as soon as you have other ways to communicate, you realise you have other ways to think. And yes. so if one way is actually closed to you <laughs> for whatever reason, having another means of communication, be it visual, be it just, a, you know, a different way of verbalising, gives you another way to think about things, doesn't it? Absolutely. I think um, also it can be really hard, especially if you have any, um, if you're processing any trauma, it can cut off. Some of the, <clears throat> some of it can stop you from feeling like you can speak. Um, some of those symptoms of complex PTSD, you, it's hard to find the words sometimes for what you've lived through or what what you're feeling in the moment. And sometimes, just drawing it out or um, singing or just just dancing it out can be really valuable. Or just standing by. Um, a wild sea and shouting at it can be really helpful. I mean, I know that's verbal, but it's like. There's ways to let out, mm. to let out what we hold inside. I remember when um, my son had a really, uh, really difficult time for three years. He had a really serious illness and um, he had to stop juggling. He was going to be a juggler <laughs> and his illness led to him not being able to follow that path. And I remember he started juggling again after a really long time off. And I made a drawing of the feeling of that, of how it felt to see him juggling again. And there were yellows and there was balls and, and it was like a bit of a Miro, um, if anyone knows what Miro looks like, his paintings. Um, so it was just very abstract and just all feeling. And I sent it to someone and I said how it felt watching my son juggling again. And he and he got it. It was this lovely moment of connection. He said, that's, there you go, that's it. You don't have to tell me anymore. <laughs> it's really lovely. That is fabulous. That is fabulous. Um I've left Calliope till the end. We have we have oh. mentioned her name. Um, <laughs> Calliope comes into George's life and I guess ultimately presents her with a challenge because mm, here is yeah. here is something for George that she wants just for herself. Um, mm. It's not like uh, it's not like Calliope has all her shit sorted out. She is not a paragon. Um, no. <laughs> she is not, uh, she, she is not, um, you know, a, a glowing light in a briefcase at the end of, um, <laughs> no, um, she shows George though. She shows George a way to see herself, to appreciate that she is allowed to want and to have things. Mm. Um, what role did you want Calliope to play in George's life? 
Oh, I mean, I think I know. Anytime anyone mentions Calliope, I start smiling so big because mm-hmm. I think she just offers. I don't know. It's. I wish I could paint it. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a feeling in my body of rightness of like there she is. There's Calliope. That's the person who is. I don't know. It's almost like somebody to walk beside through all of the noise and have someone who. You know when you talk with someone, it can be romantic or a friendship thing or a family moment where you talk and you're genuine and you deeply connect. You're just connecting but and you're being real. There's nothing surface about it. And I think when George meets Calliope, there's this moment of like, oh, you're here. And it's it's almost nonverbal. She um it's just a rightness. It's it's like it's a joke understood or a <clears throat> A moment where something isn't being demanded of her, where in fact they can just be two girls together on a ferry or walking by the sea, or they can be teaching a class together and and there's space to breathe in their relationship. And yeah, Calliope shows her also some very big truths. Calliope kind of gives her the, uh, you know, a little bit of a like, hey, if you want to be with me, there needs to be space to be with me. And and also I would like to be with you because you're great. And did you know that? <laughs> um, but not in a teaching way, just more of a, hey, I'm messy. I've got my mess. I see you've got your mess. Do you want to maybe walk through this mess together? Yeah. And would you would you like to do that? It's like a bit of a handout, like holding your hand out and saying, would you take my hand? Shall we do this? You know, and it's such a sweet, glowing moment of positive of hope i think and and also you know they have their difficulties but it's it's again it's that that feeling of love and being held and being safe and being listened to and and george finds that with lots of different people she finds out that she actually is a person of value in people's lives and she's not just a value because she's useful Oh dear, Helena, we have frozen. She, we are quite, we are quite frozen, Helena. Actually, in her own right, I love being loved. It's a, oh no, oh no, am I back? Hello, hello. Okay. Can you hear me now? Yes, I can hear you now. It did a weird, it did a weird thing where I think there was a time delay <laughs> where I could hear you. Oh no! I could hear you keep talking, and then I'm like, okay, you can't <laughs> hear me saying we're frozen, and then you reacted to me saying we're frozen. <laughs> well, let's see what that sounds like in the interview because it might be all my great wisdom might have been lost, or just we couldn't see each other's faces I, while I was so wise. I think we we only lost a few seconds there, but I, it also struck me you as you were saying that it is it is an adage it is an adage of writing that you show you don't tell and i i felt like calliope did that for george in their relationship she was doing the things that she needed george to do that george needed to do she she took the space when she needed it she she wasn't going to just people please and she showed george how you could you know be be open to failing so that you had the path forward to succeed. Yeah. I think Calliope is, she's, I love that she's complex in her own way. Um, but she also is this, she just offers up a new way of seeing, I think, 
for George, just an, a, an alternate path where it's like, well, what if you don't just say yes because you think you should? What if you choose? What do you want, George? What do you want? Choose choose that and, and then go forward from there. Um, so she just kind of hardballs it a little bit. She's like, this is how it is. This is, um, <clears throat> you know, you deserve to make choices that are in, in your best interests. And Mel says that and other people in her world says that say that and it's it's just this these little moments of these little offerings to George saying well what do you want you know how do you want to live and even the most demanding and kind of insistent voice comes to realize that George has a choice as well that she really does get to choose her own path and she does get to have safe and healthy boundaries so yeah Calliope is an enormous instigator of that new realization and she does it with so much love i mentioned before that perhaps there was a whole book in tessa's story there is there is definitely a whole yeah. book in calliope's story perhaps it is a testament to any novel when the the characters who are not our protagonist, not our central character, have a book in themselves. And I, I think The Quiet and the Loud have many of those. I am speaking <laughs> with Helena Fox. We are discussing her new novel. It is called The Quiet and the Loud. And it is really something. There is just so much. And I hope so many people get to discover it in all its in all its quietness and its noise. Helena, thank you so much for the time you've taken today. Oh, thank you, Andrew. It's been such a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for joining me, everyone. That is it for this incredible conversation with Helena Fox. Helena's new book is called The Quiet and the Loud, and it is out now from Pan Macmillan. <laughs> um, final draft. We record on the lands of the Darug and the Gunungurra people. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. I would love, if you're enjoying the show, for you to get in touch. You can find Final Draft on Twitter, Instagram, or on Facebook. The handle is at Final Draft 2 ser but... Also, if you're enjoying the show and you want to let us know, just send us a rating, drop us a rating or a comment wherever you're listening to the podcast. It's a way to let me know how you feel about the show and that gives me a warm fuzzy. It's also a great way to help other people discover the show. I will be back next week with more incredible conversations with Australian authors. Until then, happy reading. Bye for now.